0: You are listening to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that explores the very best in movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will.
1: It almost sounded like the preamble to the supermercado Brothers, in a sense. The
0: two shows are merging. Are And I think it's,
1: yeah, it's going to be fitting for today's episode because this is going to be a slightly different format yeah. from episodes that we've done um, in the past on Underscore. And I'm so excited about it. And we kind of have to because once again this week, we're continuing our discussion on the music to Back to the Future. And you really can't talk about Back to the Future without talking about all of the incredible
0: songs that are in the movie it's such a unique blend of score and pre-existing songs and uh, original pop songs written for this film and actually as we've been preparing this episode this week we're sort of hard-pressed to think of a film that rides a similar sort of balance right There really is so much
1: music in the film, and so much of the popular music is really intimately connected with the characters and our associations to the movie in a way that you could almost say is as equivalent to Alan Silvestri's music and in some cases almost strikes like a motivic quality and we're going to see in some of the songs that are so well associated with Back to the Future you could almost consider them like an alternate theme for the character of Marty or
0: really for the movie Right, yeah, it's all part of the same fabric of Back to the Future music in keeping with our sort of uh, askew take on things today, we're going to talk about a role in the music department that we haven't really come across so far on the show, and that's music supervisor. Right. And it's a role that can mean a lot of different things. Sure. It's sort of like uh, the role of producer. Right. It can mean a lot of different things depending on the project. The music supervisor for Back to the Future was a gentleman named Bones Howe. You can't make these names up. Yeah. <laughs> And if you can't guess by the uh, colorful name, he had a life in rock and roll production. He was a producer in the 60s and 70s and then moved his way in the 80s to music supervising and films and eventually was sort of promoted up the ranks through uh, Columbia Pictures and then Sony Pictures when Sony acquired... Columbia. You got to say, all said and done,
1: he definitely was the right man for the job, because there are very few films with as iconic a soundtrack, either when it comes to film score or to pre-existing music. I mean, I think as we'll see today, it's really kind of a trip through the movie by listening to all this music in the same right. way that a great film score can transport you back to your experience watching the movie and brings up all of this imagery. I think some of the music to Back to the Future really does does the same thing especially in the case of the original songs that were written for the movie because that really is their
0: intended association. Absolutely Uh, so most of the songs that we're going to be listening to today come from the officially released soundtrack that came out in 1985 and is still in print even digitally in the Apple Music Store or iTunes Store. Are are we still calling it the iTunes (laughs) Store? It's interesting to think about that score being sold
1: after the date that they travel to in Back to the future too I wonder if people would have thought that
0: back in 85 boy I wonder so the very first track of that soundtrack album is also the very first piece of music, really, in the film. With
1: the exception of that guitar chord that Marty strikes in the opening of the movie when you know he turns on all those dials and we're wondering, what kind of crazy machine... Right. Doc is... has built some
0: kind of custom
1: amp that just <laughs> seems giant. Yeah, the first piece of music you hear is a single chord, I guess, if you even want to call that music. Right. It's just too darn loud, though. <laughs> it is
0: just too darn loud. So the very first song is really the anthem of the film and it's The Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the News. A little bit of background as to how Huey Lewis sort of came to be involved in this film and in sort of movie songs in general. Very famously the year before, Ghostbusters, which had been a huge hit both as a film and the soundtrack was really huge. And right. Centerpiece song by Ray Parker Jr., the Ghostbusters theme, who you're gonna call, was a really huge hit. Well, Huey Lewis, like everyone else who was alive in America at that time, heard the song but noticed that it sounded an awful lot like his song I Want a New Drug. Right. And he actually filed a lawsuit And he ultimately received a settlement. Years later, uh, some of the producers on Ghostbusters actually revealed that they had temped the song into parts of the film, and that Ray Parker was exposed to that. So Huey Lewis was very much at that point inclined to writing music for for films, (laughs) because he had, in fact, turned down the Ghostbusters gig and got to sort of experience just how fruitful and culturally impactful a hit movie song could really be. So when we're introduced to the song, uh, like Will said, it's early on in the film. It's just past the title sequence and Marty's attempt at a giant power cord in Doc's uh, custom amp. And turns out he is late to school. And so he's going to ride to school the only way he knows how, on his skateboard, hitching rides from different vehicles well, throughout I
1: Hill Valley that whole first scene just really sets up that Marty McFly is a cool dude and what I've always so enjoyed about the film you know watching it after the 80s is that this whole movie becomes like a time capsule not only for right. the 50s the decade that he travels back to but the 80s itself and the opening of this song that we're about to hear to me sets the tone for the entire movie honestly right. and because it is the first taste of music that you get it really has an important role in the film, and I think it completely delivers the promise of the movie. The same way that they say, you know, the first five or ten minutes in a screenplay need to give you a taste of what you're going to experience. I think that happens, you know, in the first few bars of the song.
0: Let's dig right into the central song of Back to the Future, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News, written by Huey Lewis, Chris Hayes, and Johnny Colo. <laughs> Last week we were talking with John Lunn, and he was talking about music, in his case Underscore, offering something that's not on screen, beyond what's said by the actors, and that's something that we've touched on before. We've talked about John Williams' almost writing emotional backstory in his Mm -hmm. music. What I love about this central theme, The Power of Love, is it actually makes explicit something that is very subtle really in the screenplay if you were to pull this song out which is that it's a love story through and through.
1: It's kind of a twisted weird love story but definitely a love story (laughs) nonetheless. It's a love story where our main character is trying to get his mother to not fall in love with him but rather with his father but there ultimately ends up being a lot of sweetness and heart to the movie. I love that the song just if we're talking about the lyrics, uh, there's almost like a warning level to it. The power of love is a curious thing. Right. It's almost like he's warning Marty, like, be careful, <laughs> you know, because the power of love could have prevented him from even existing. Gosh, absolutely. And it's really one of the central dilemma of the movie, really.
0: Well, and I've always seen it, too, is related to Marty's drive to get back home is for Jennifer, his love for Jennifer. And it's really the song that does a lot of the heavy lifting for establishing... Right their love. I mean his his high school love, you know. <laughs> it's
1: like right. puppy love, I guess. But
0: ultimately, 30 years into the future still going strong or a form of strong. Right. Last week we tried our hand at describing perhaps why Back to the Future is such a timeless film. There's so many stars that are kind of aligning uh, here. And I actually think the choice of Huey Lewis and the News for the sort of two central songs mm-hmm. is a big part of it. When you think of the instrumentation of that band, it's sort of unique. It's heavy on these clean electric guitars, but also has horns, also has synths. Right. It almost makes it a little bit difficult to place. And so while it's certainly of the 80s, it's not exactly a sort of 80s cliche the way that I think some other music of this period could have been.
1: I think that's true. I mean, I, I, I still definitely think it's very much married to its era. I mean, when you (laughs) hear those first two chords, it's just like, it can be in no other decade. It's really (laughs) impossible. But yeah, it's not necessarily leaning on cliches, I guess. Huey Lewis, we really associate that music to films, uh, not only just with this movie, but also with Top Gun. But I kind of want to talk about this song, you know, musically, because that's really important. You mentioned, Marty, earlier that the the song actually has like a narrative quality. But what's so great about when we're introduced to it in the beginning is it almost sounds like a song that was taken straight off the radio and just like put into the film because there's no indication of love or anything like that at at this point in the movie. It's not like a montage about, you know, dating or Marty and his
0: girlfriend. No, I think that's so true. And it could just as easily be coming from the trucks that he's hitching a ride on. Or the sort of aerobics exercise uh, gym that he passes by. (laughs) Right. Zemeckis gives us almost just as much time getting acquainted with the 80s version of Hill Valley. Mm -hmm. And we don't really realize what we're being set up for at this point in the movie. Because it's all just so fun to watch. I often love those choices in
1: films where we don't realize we're being exposed to something that's crucial to the plot. Because it's just interesting and satisfying to experience in and of itself. Right. So
0: the song ends as Marty arrives to school and Jennifer is there waiting for him. And Marty once again is late and he runs into Mr. Strickland. You might remember him. He's the guy who calls everyone slackers, um, tells Marty he's not going to amount to anything. No McFly will amount to anything in Hill Valley. He
1: even pushes his nose up against Marty. It's like a child's version of what an angry teacher is like. I almost couldn't imagine
0: that that character was actually saying those things. But he's also just delicious. He gives such a great (laughs) performance in all the films really it turns out that marty and his band the pinheads are actually planning to audition for the school dance and what's so wonderful is the song that they audition to is the power of love Mm -hmm. but in this sort of 80s heavy metal version right (laughs) and let's take a listen to that clip and it is unfortunately cut short by a really interesting character
1: I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. Yeah, if you didn't know, that was actually Huey Lewis himself in kind of a cameo role. I I always just found that so charming because it's such a wink. I mean, we have to remember that this film was introducing that song to everybody, so it's like being covered within the same movie. And within a few short minutes of each other, the song goes from being diegetic music to being non-diegetic music, which is kind of rare for something like that to happen. I mean, I can think of certain instances I remember in, like, Uh, Either it was Spider-Man or Spider-Man 2 When there was that woman singing the Spider-Man song I
0: believe Spider-Man 2 Yeah, Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, little moments like that Where people are winking at something Or even if there's a film with a very, you know, memorable Maybe you'll hear somebody, like, whistling it or something Hagrid, I
0: think, plays Hedwig's theme on his flute Right,
1: yeah So I, I think things like that happen in films But for that to happen so quickly in this movie And it's not like we have prior exposure to the song Power of Love Like it was written for the movie. Right. So I think it might even be something that would go unnoticed
0: to audiences.
1: I think something that was important in the movie was to make the 80s feel like home and to feel like comfortable for the character of Marty. Um, And so by maintaining the same music, I think it just helps solidify that and reaffirm our association to, uh, particularly the instrumental aspects of Power of Love with that setting. Because music really, in addition to all the striking visuals, play a huge role in character the different time periods. Right. They end up being sort of the
0: special effect. Yeah. Along exactly. with the costuming and the production design that helped to sell the time travel, really. What I love about this moment in terms of the overall story and the structure of Back to the Future, we're introduced to almost Marty's kind of I want here. Right. (laughs) He and his band want to play the dance and they're rejected. I don't know that a lot of us that know and love this movie well really think about the great thread that runs from the beginning to the end of the movie as far as Marty auditioning for the dance and this is not the dance he's meant to play <laughs> so marty and jennifer then walk out into the sort of town square of hill valley and that's where we hear our next little snippet of a song and it's actually playing on a campaign van uh goldie wilson is running for mayor and we hear just a tiny little stretch mostly the intro of john philip souza's famous the washington post march <laughs>
1: You know, I'm really glad we're doing this with Back to the Future. You know, with most movies, there tends to be music that is inserted that either is meant to exist within the fabric of the film or just borrowed from our own popular culture. But it's just so important, and it's inescapable really when talking about this movie but an example like this is sort of the benefit of the fact that we're doing this episode I don't think most people would really associate this with Back to the Future because it's a piece of music that we might have so many extra musical associations with it actually pops up all over the place in film and as the name suggests, it has it has connotations outside of the world of film and outside of the world of, you know, concert music. So much of what Sousa did so masterfully was writing these indelible melodies that could really live on for generations. And I think that's true. So much of his music is still recognizable to this day. And what's great about film is it's been a real venue for classical composers to have their music live on. And in my opinion Absolutely. John Philip Sousa is among the all-time great classical composers
0: right and it very well may have been selected for just being sort of vaguely patriotic right. and, and American, <laughs> but it should never be denied that it's just a wonderful piece of music. Well, and
1: even among Sousa marches, this particular one has no connotation necessarily to the military or to America itself. It, right. it somehow avoids feeling too much like a cliche. It, right. it seems like a song you could actually imagine being played from the van.
0: At the very end of the scene is Jennifer walks away and she kisses Marty and we're treated to another little taste of the power of love, really helping to kind of plant those seeds of that. It's like this is what we were referring to. Right. <laughs> and then the next several minutes of the film are unaccompanied by any music, either score or songs. But it's also an incredible part of the film where we're introduced to Marty's parents and his parents brother and sister and his sort of status quo life. And we're also introduced to Biff, who is clearly a bully in 1985 to George. We
1: say this really with every movie, but I don't think there's a greater example of me just not being able to contain myself for getting to watch (laughs) Back to the Future because it's been a couple years and
0: uh, I really can't let this much time go by between viewings. The next morning, Marty wakes up at the crack of dawn and he's supposed to meet Doc Brown, who we've yet to meet, at the Twin Pines Mall, and there's a bit of a song playing in his clock radio as he wakes up. Again, very tiny snippet, but it was included in the official Back to the Future soundtrack when that was released. It's a song called Time Bomb Town by Lindsay Buckingham of Fleetwood Mac. Let's take a listen.
1: I think this is another great example of establishing the era it's important to have enough at the time contemporary music so that we feel grounded in the year since time is a big component and also really I think they chose this song because the word time is in the title <laughs> and they want as much of that subliminal foreshadowing to the crux of the whole movie and it's just it's a fun little wink but I mean I think also just for the purpose of having a soundtrack album it gives a justification for that song being on the album too which may not have been a conscious thought when they were making the film, okay, but sure. it sure looks good.
0: And again, it's, like Will said, of its era, but not so far of the sort of cliches of the era as to potentially date the film. Right. Yeah, there's uh, so many acoustic elements. I really love that uh, riff, that intro melody.
1: It's
0: really Speaking of Mark Brothers, that could stand an 8-bit or 16-bit remix. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We may actually get treated to something like that later on the episode today.
0: Ooh! So then Marty does meet, oh, I said the crack of none, but it's really more in the middle of the night, in the dark of the night that Marty wakes up. And he meets Doc Brown at Twin Pines Mall. And it's at this point when Alan Silvestri makes his entrance in the film. And so the next several minutes, we're treated to incredible score, which we're going to be getting into next week. Anyone that's seen the film can remember what ensues there in the mall parking lot. Needless to say, Marty ends up getting inside the DeLorean, which is a time machine powered by plutonium, and he gets up to 88 miles per hour. And while he doesn't quite... Well, you have to talk about the flux capacitor. You we can't, you
1: can't ignore the flux capacitor. That's what makes time travel possible.
0: possible. Absolutely. May we never forget the flux capacitor. <laughs> so Marty then crashes into 1955 and crashes into a barn, actually. And this is, again, all happening with Silvestri's wonderful score. He gradually makes his way back into town. And it takes some doing and some walking. And as he walks back into Hill Valley, this is that sort of unforgettable scene in the film where we're really introduced to the 50s in full force. And it's all supported by the unforgettable song mr sandman the version used in the film is by the four aces and it is just magical yeah (laughs) it's that sort of delightful no holds barred colorful orchestration the orchestra here directed by jack pleiss actually reminds will and i of some of the great production music that we so love of the 50s and 60s great you know german composers absolutely let's take a listen to mr sandman
1: Sandman Bring me a dream Make her complexion Like peaches
0: and cream Give her two lips Like roses and clover Then tell me That my lonesome night
1: so amazing when looking at Back to the Future that some of the most seminal emotional moments aren't scored by Alan Silvestri they are scored with this existing music but it's so effective uh, and it really pulls you into the film because even if we wouldn't necessarily imagine this music actually playing it's not necessarily something Marty's hearing it is so attached to the era of the 50s the same way that Power of Love and the Huey Lewis stuff is attached to the 80s and the fact that the fact that there's a dissonance between how marty's feeling cuz you know he's probably really terrified and confused with this really cheery and jolly music i mean i love the song mr sandman But this production here Is really amping up all of the You could say kind of saccharine Clichés of the 50s In just kind of how cheery and sweet Everything was and it really plays For humor I think especially at the time Because it really seems like in the last five years There's been this resurgence of Appreciation for the 80s And it's the same amount of time You know from 2015 (laughs) to 1985 As it was from 1985 To 1955 so I don't think There'd been you know a really thorough Examination or reappreciation of like the 50s culture, and so I especially at the time hearing something like this juxtaposed with this modern film, there was probably a lot of humor in that choice, and I still think there is because you can kind of create this caricature. Of the 50s in the same right. way that you can create a caricature of the 80s and by juxtaposing them it's just really fun but yeah there's so much to say about this song uh, I love this era of songwriting and particularly in this version and I think most of the versions that I'm familiar with they have this really lush almost like barbershop quartet style harmony like right,
0: that close harmony oh
1: mm-hmm. it's really lovely it has that flavor of harmony that I would associate to almost like pre-jazz American sort of folk alley, yeah, right? yeah, really
0: just sunshiny harmony. Absolutely, and this particular version really seems like it was custom fit or built for the film. The opening is so striking. We have that lush sort of harp Mr. and Santa. flute intro and then that very ethereal, right. distant Mr. Sandman in the chorus. And in the context of the film, it does... It seems ominous. Right. Um, And so we get that really ominous kind of impact of the opening and then we're led into the verse of the song and it's so jolly and Zemeckis has directed the scene just so brilliantly and once again the song is doing quite a lot of the heavy lifting for the production value because we're in the very same set that we were just visiting 10 minutes ago
1: I have to imagine either Zemeckis or that Bones you know whoever found this recording and had that idea there must have been high fives exchanged because it it was just such a perfect idea A gentlemanly handshakes. (laughs) It really just fits the scene so well. It's one of those serendipitous moments where you almost can't believe that it wasn't made for the film. It almost fits the moment even better than the Huey Lewis stuff which was made for Back to the Future. It's at the very least uh, as effective and as potent as those choices. Yeah.
0: What I love looking at this now from 2017 we have power of love to be our sort of 80s representation of hill valley and mr sandman the 50s representation of hill valley and what's so great is they're each wonderful songs each wonderful pop songs employing production techniques of their era and Mm -hmm. it's great to see sort of just how far ranging those can end up being yeah I I think that's really true and just
1: maintaining a fabric of quality music throughout the film I think is really important it it doesn't I never felt like the movie was trying to put down the fifties, but neither is it completely romanticizing it either in a way you can almost look at back to the future as kind of a horror film. Like what you only have one television and like, look at all the things you don't have yet. There's something really charming about that period too. I think they strike the right balance and the music is part of that tone. You know I mean? Hard pressed to not just enjoy the sheer melodic beauty of some of these fifties songs. Absolutely.
0: So as Marty comes to terms with where he is and when he is, he steps into a diner, and in the diner we hear our next piece of music. might be a little difficult to make out, but it's actually the uh, Davy Crockett song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, which is a huge hit at its time mm-hmm. and very right for the period and, again, could only be from this era. Right. Let's take a listen. This is Fess Parker singing The Ballad of Davy Crockett. Mm-hmm. ¶¶ Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee ¶¶¶ Green estate in the land of the free ¶¶¶ Raised in the woods so he knew every tree ¶¶¶ Killed him a bar when he was only three ¶¶¶ Davy, Davy Crockett ¶¶¶ King of the wild frontier ¶¶ Fought single-handed through the engine war Till the creeks was whipped and the peace was in store While he was handling this risky chore Made himself a legend forevermore Baby, Davey, Davey Crockett, king of the wild frontier Yeah, our father loves that song. He's pretty much a George McFly-era <laughs> kid. Very much. Growing up around the house, it was
1: always this or... Gunsmoke or Maverick, you know, always singing or old. Or the Zorro song. Yeah, Zorro's is a huge one. He loves those old. Uh, he loves those old TV shows and the themes that are so much of that era. I mean, it's really something that you might make fun of now, having these long narrative songs that really just describe a character and all of their adventures. But it was so quaint and charming at the time. And I think the thing that people forget is that. As earnest as some of these songs might be, there is an element of intentional camp or intentional tongue-in-cheek oh, quality so. to it. I mean, yeah. it's so much of it is done for children in the same way yeah. that we wouldn't necessarily look at a song written for Sesame Street and make fun of it for not being, you know, overly intellectual or subtle or something. Sure. I think part of it is, like, people look back and the 50s were really a decade that were about appealing to children, but because that was the whole baby boom, you know, that was the generation they were
0: trying to appeal right. to. And who is it that sort of depicting the 50s for us a lot of times it is people that were children then right (laughs) and so it might only be natural for them to think of those things as childish as they Mm -hmm. get older we're seeing a similar thing now i think like you said will with the 80s right I think the eighties tend to be depicted as really child friendly. Yeah, it's course, all about
1: like Nintendo games and <laughs> Right and each cartoon and shows and, yeah, and films. Uh, but yeah, they're not necessarily thinking about what we're like eighties businessmen doing. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> that's that's less of something to glamorize, I guess. So then we have a pretty long stretch of the film with Alan doing most of the work with the underscore and can't wait to get to some of those cues. Next week, um, really excited, though, about the next song that we're going to play. If you can really call it a song, it's a tiny little excerpt. And for years, it was actually unclear where this came from. The crediting had been correct. It was understood that Eddie Van Halen was performing this piece. Mm-hmm. But there's a little bit of confusion as to where it originated. And actually, it comes from a film that Eddie Van Halen scored called The Wildlife. And this was in 1984, the year before Back to the Future. And it found another life and probably a larger uh, profile. Yeah, life I mean, when in Darth Vader
1: Future, uh, from the planet Vulcan comes down to try to torture George McFly into asking Lorraine to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, this is the sound of that torture. And I think. To people that are familiar with the film but maybe can't conjure the music, when you hear this, this will be an instant blast of nostalgia. I love that in the movie he just has, like, a cassette tape that says Van Halen on it. (laughs) As though this is, like, off of his greatest hits or, like, this is just something that
0: any kid of the 80s would have when really it was from this, like, rather obscure movie. I think that's kind of cool. Although if you wanted to sort of be an apologist for it, it seems like Marty's maybe a pretty huge heavy metal and Van Halen fan. And he's also playing Huey Lewis
1: songs before they were even released,
0: which is really
1: impressive. (laughs) Wow, I never thought about that. That is some foreshadow. Yeah,
0: Chuck Berry before Chuck Berry Huey Lewis before Huey Lewis (laughs) Yeah, but He's the hero of time, R. Marty
1: (laughs) That's true, and he has your name Which is probably making this very Confusing to those listening at home But what I love about it, and it's really Just that intro part that's used The kind of wild and crazy Techniques that are being used On the guitar there, you must imagine From like the 1950s Years, they would sound like this Otherworldly, crazy sound sound and i just remember that image of Crispin Glover just like shooting up in his bed <laughs> like it's just the most torturous sound i think they're also kind of poking fun a little bit that it's like this generation's music to the earlier generation would just seem like garbage or completely <laughs> misunderstood but also the movie is doing a good job to characterize music of the 80s as something good on its own as well so right. it, it, this isn't marty you know dealing with his old you know father who's in his 40s this is Marty going back to the time when his father was the same age as him, he's not trying to sell him on the music. It's like he right. knows my father will hate this music. It doesn't matter how old
0: he is. I think he knows how effective it is and just being kind of alien and strange. <laughs> right. And I kind of like thinking of it that way. It's very subtle because everything in this film moves so fast it rewards kind of careful examination and Mm -hmm. if you look at sort of marty's musicality as part of his character arc it's sort of interesting you know he's rejected at the dance audition and here it's maybe some acknowledgement that like okay yeah this music that i love is really strange and to my dad is going to just sound like alien lasers right and it's very loud right just probably too darn loud (laughs) All right. So George finally gets up the gumption. Well, sort of. Yeah. He talks about his density and it's very confusing. Right. So he's sort of determined with Marty's help and with Darth Vader's help, of course, to ask Lorraine out to the enchantment under the sea dance. And she's sitting in the diner, the diner that Marty first came into, this time filled with high school students. And that butthead Biff who comes in later, but ugh. And this is another great scene for capturing the period. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful costumes, and it's just great seeing this diner hopping. Like any of the other scenes we've talked about so far that are really selling the period, there's a great period song that's mm-hmm. playing on the radio. In this case, it's a song called The Wallflower, Dance With Me, Henry, sung by the legendary Etta James.
1: Hey baby, what I
0: have to do to make you love me too? We haven't talked so far today about the role of uh, tempo in any of these songs Mm -hmm. in terms of how they're impacting the scene. I just feel like the tempo of the song is just so married to how this scene plays out, both in the editing and the pacing of how George kind of slowly makes his way to Lorraine's table. Mm -hmm. And then the music abruptly gets cut off as as Biff starts to threaten George.
1: See, that's another effective thing. So much of this music is used in very abrupt ways where whenever it cuts out, again, it just reemphasizes the fact that we're in the real world. You know, this isn't score that's going to guide you seamlessly, even though there is plenty of that in the film. When it needs to, it's willing to kind of have these jarring entrances and exits. Another thing I want to talk about, something on a musical level, is the role of the blues. When we're talking about some of the music of the 1950s and some of the really popular stuff that's in Back to the Future, a lot of it is written in kind of this like blues style. This is a piece with that same blues progression, and then we think of some of the rock songs that happen in the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, you know, that amazing Chuck Berry moment, also being influenced by the blues, and Some of the Huey Lewis stuff, you could also say, has this element of, if not the blues progression, what we would call the blues scale, which are a series of altered notes that we associate with jazz and a lot of our popular music. And I think it's cool. It's kind of like a through line
0: from the 50s through to the 80s, you could say. Absolutely. Boy, I love looking at it that way. By this point, uh, as we said, the movie has a lot of propulsion and it, moves pretty fast we're already getting towards the finale of the film which all centers around this enchantment under the sea dance Mm -hmm. and again i love how it might be subtly done but the seeds for this high school dance closing the picture are really placed in the beginning you know right Marty's auditioning for the dance, and we probably get distracted by everything that happens in the movie. In some part of his mind, he's maybe been looking forward to uh, the high school dance. Well, I think there's
1: also this element of showing how certain things never change. And with the school, it's meant to just be like, you know, they've been doing the same thing for decades. And even they make a joke about Strickland. You know, did that guy ever have hair? And that he was still working back in the '50s, and he looks exactly the same. I mean, they also do kind of a similar thing with Christopher (laughs) Lloyd. Part of that could have just been, you know, limitations of makeup or whatever. So they thought to make a joke out of it. But there seems to be like a satire element, the way that that stuff is done, that it's like the things that Marty was worried about in kind of a poignant way are some of the same things that his father was worried about. And as much as things change in each subsequent generation, there are certain constances. Maybe the music is different, but, you know, there's still a high school dance and there's still all of the nerves and awkwardness surrounding, you know, that whole thing
0: so we're now getting to our first song from the starlighters led by the wonderful marvin barry <laughs> cousin of a very famous and recently departed chuck barry the first song that we hear them playing is instrumental led by the tenor sax and it's the classic 12 bar blues night train written originally by oscar washington lewis simpkins and jimmy forrest
1: One of the most iconic pieces of music in the whole movie. I mean, I love that snarly tenor sax sound, and And specifically just examining that melody, like all the notes that it lands on, landing on the kind of the ninth scale degree, uh, has this really interesting sort of tension. That what's cool about that song is it almost seems like a little bit ahead of its time. You know right. I wouldn't necessarily associate that to the 50s it's very if I may it's kind of sexual like it's really evocative and what I like about that it's kind of showing like this is music that young people of the time would have thought was really cool and right kind of cutting edge
0: I love that and yeah the Starlighters are shown to be a really cool band yeah totally and like Marty would want to be a part of them and I, they were even called reefer addicts I think <laughs> in the is that the second movie which is quite rude no i think in the first one. Oh yeah it's, it gets all blurred on my mind because they go back to the same scene but yeah it's also great because at this point in the film we've been living in 1955 long enough we've been gaining an appreciation i think for the period right and so yeah i love that everything the starlighters play is not only really effective for the film but it's also yeah really cool and really timeless We haven't mentioned it, but Marty does have a date for the dance. It's your and my worst nightmare, his mother. (laughs) And as they roll into the parking lot, we hear uh, a tiny snippet of a song, an old 50s ballad uh, called Pledging My Love by Johnny Ace very faintly heard in the film and does a good job of really kind of capturing the period Mm -hmm. without probably costing the production a high licensing fee the other thing that's great about kind of the choice of music in the film is
1: when things are instrumental as opposed to when they have vocals and i think sometimes they find songs with vocals you know they need to be at a quieter level uh, because Mm -hmm. it kind of conflicts with the dialogue if it's supposed to be a, a dialogue scene. I think some of those concerns are often at play, and when we notice that Night Train example, it's fairly loud in the film, and I think that the fact that it's instrumental kind of allows it to sit with the dialogue in a way that is almost score-like, you could say, and I think the reason why that song has much more of an association to the film than, say, this pledging my love to you, I think is partly because, you know, this
0: has to be so quiet in the mix, and, you know, we're focused on the dialogue. Well, moving our way back to the Starlighters, this time with a lead vocal, by Marvin Berry. It's a moment in the film that's just unforgettable. And Back to the Future really gave this timeless song a second life. And I think for a generation that wouldn't have been exposed to it, this is a pretty special introduction. We're talking about Earth Angel. What's wonderful here is not only does it play a really important role in capturing Lorraine and George's love, but really interesting things happen here in the relation of the song with Alan Silvestri's score. Right. Right they start fighting each other mm-hmm. as we're entering some conflict. And you might remember, oh, we haven't even mentioned, Marty has joined the Starlighters yeah. at this point. <laughs> kind of begrudgingly, I love the look on
1: his face when, like, you can play guitar, right? And what's so funny is, like, through so much of the movie, it seems like all he wants to do is play music. And then we see him playing guitar, strumming, and it's like he's kind of like a caged animal because the kind of music he's into is really shreddy and wild. And here he's just playing this kind of forward. But again, chord. I think
0: on his trajectory, he's not the same guy he was at right. that audition and so you're getting a little bit of a taste of that 80s teen mm-hmm. but in the course of this we'll see that it's he's bringing his parents together and he's seeing a side of them he's never witnessed yeah but as he's playing the song and you might remember in the headstock of the guitar he has the photo from the future from his present of his family And there's been a conceit in the film that the images of his siblings will fade if the timeline that they're on isn't quite correct. So anyways, George and Lorraine get interrupted and things look pretty dire and Alan starts bringing in the music and it's this really kind of frightening interplay between the song Mm -hmm. and Alan's score. And eventually George gets up the gumption to push this guy off and marty stands back up i would just love this moment so much and yeah strums some beautiful chords on the guitar and alan comes in with the score now we have these sweeping strings supporting right. earth angel so it's <laughs> wonderful let's take a listen to the song sung by marvin barry and the starlighters So beautiful. We should mention there's some dispute over the authorship of Earth Angel. Kind of an interesting read, even if you want to just browse the Wikipedia article for the song. But so beautiful. I love the delivery of the vocal here. Mm-hmm. It's yet another one of the sort of anthems of Back to the Future. Right. Quite a few now at this point.
1: It, again, characterizes the period. This chord progression is probably one of the most common and popular throughout the history of popular music. Right. Earth Angel is probably the quintessential or at least has become the quintessential example of that progression. Sure. Also, what I so love about this point in the film, it it shows like the evolution of rock music is such like a logical step. In a way that really when people talk about, you know, American music history in the 20th century, it almost always is characterized like there's this radical change, you know, the electric guitar and rock and roll really taking over and also a whole cultural revolution and everything. Right. But what I think is so great about how they frame, what is so great about how they frame it in this movie is so much of it really is about tempo you know, because that first song they were playing, Night Train, you know, it's a blues tune. Right. And what ultimately happens with Johnny B. Good is he's like, it's just a blues tune. Watch me for the changes. And then he just, you know, plays really fast. Right. I mean, obviously that's a simplification musically, but I just like that in the movie, it almost just makes it seem like this logical evolution and that you can kind of see the DNA of some of the music that his parents were listening to in his own music. I still so love that it's fun
0: for both will and I just how much of an awakening we're having just going through these songs yeah prior to this we sort of thought we'd examined and loved and explored every corner of back to the future mm-hmm. uh, it's really neat though seeing the musical story that's happening not only with the score really the musical story that connects Marty and his parents through song
1: I'm just a- a- Okay, so we've alluded to it, but now it's time for one of the most delightful and fittingly enchanting moments in the movie. What I so love about this moment is it's almost like a dessert. Right. It's completely unnecessary, and I love it. We're talking about the song Johnny Be Good, and what's so great is Marty's really like gotten his parents together at this point. Right. You know, it happened during Earth Angel. (laughs) This is kind of like a little bonus, like, oh, man, you got something else to play. And it's such a magical moment. And it's a memory that so many people attach to this movie. And I just love that they had the confidence to indulge in something like this, this late in the film. You know, you'd think that you really want to amp things up. You know, Marty's got to get back in time. They keep emphasizing time and that he's running out of it. And so the fact that they indulge in a moment like this... May go unnoticed, but I think it's one of the elements that makes Back to the Future so
0: darn magical. Well, and like we said, the movie moves so fast that a lot of the character development might sort of pass you by. What's great about this here is it's kind of an emotional punctuation for Marty. Mm-hmm. Like we've said, it's somewhat subtle, but he does have this arc of really experiencing his parents and knowing them. And a lot of that is expressed through his musicality, which is really unique. What's great here is we're actually introduced to an aspect of Marty's character that we were completely oblivious to, which is that he knows classic rock. Right. And he likes oldies, as he calls them. Right. And I love that we're getting that so late in the movie. It's really touching. It's almost like a delightful little Uh happy twist. Right. And yeah, like you said, Will, uh, this is a great dessert. And I think for anyone that loves the movie, we're all looking forward to this scene Mm -hmm. It never feels superfluous. And there's the delightful joke where, you know, Marvin Barry is off stage and it's clear that he's calling Chuck berry We're starting to play with the interesting butterfly effect of time. It's like, oh, did Marty McFly actually inspire Chuck Barry with Johnny Be Good? Anyways, we should take a listen to the song because it is just wonderful. Uh, and let's mention the vocalist on this is Mark Campbell. And we'll link in the notes for the show to a lovely little video where mark campbell is talking about getting the assignment to sing on the movie it's a pretty fun little story also probably a good time to mention uh, some of the other personnel on the starlighters we've got tommy thomas on saxophone granville danny young on the upright bass david harold brown on drums and lloyd tolbert on piano some of the crediting seems like it's been slightly disputed mark campbell actually talks about hal blaine playing drums on his session so who knows oh and also marvin barry who is. On the phone during this scene was portrayed by Harry Waters Jr. Let's take a listen to Johnny Be Good. That is movie magic
1: folks. The immortal Chuck Berry. We really owe everything in this moment to him and so much of our cultural landscape and really an entire generation of music to follow. Chuck Berry is just an incredible figure and probably one of the smaller of his accomplishments but something that's very notable to me is creating one of the most delightful moments in one of my favorite films.
0: (laughs) Uh, Back to the Future would not be Back to the Future without Johnny B. Good. Absolutely not. And uh, like we said, it's really just desserts. Marty auditioned to play at his high school dance and was rejected. And here he is. It's sort of living his dream, um, but completely unlike what he had ever imagined. Right. Now he's actually filled with
1: purpose. It's like playing at this dance is bringing his parents together, thus justifying his own existence. Back to the Future is such a quirky movie. This science fiction, time travel, high school movie, family comedy, weird romance like there's nothing else like it right. and I think that's just what's so delightful it's that thing of being strange but oddly perfect at the same time right. like it feels so satisfying in almost like these inevitable ideas yet when you examine it it's really so strange and it's just so miraculous that all those pieces came together right
0: and yeah it's a great example of when the experience is joyful and unique and effective that can really be everything and I know in sort of our internet culture now, there's a pretty popular trend of trying to kind of like move away from a film and try to critique it on paper almost or I guess on YouTube comment or blog but that's that's not really where it lives you know it lives at the speed of this film and in these scenes and is portrayed by this great and cast if you ever get to see the movie live with an audience
1: it becomes an entirely different film and the whole rhythm of it is so right. geared for an audience and I think with classic films I consider this a classic film that's something we forget that this was made for an audience and there's not another movie I can think of that delights audiences
0: like back to the future right so like will said this is sort of a climax of our family story but then we have the sort of action survival story right and (laughs) that heads into its climax also and in Incredibly iconic, memorable stretch of film as Doc is on the clock tower, and it's one of the great sections of score in Mm -hmm. any film. Can't wait to touch on that. Marty really
1: has so much to do. The intensity of the whole last act of the movie is just so palpable. You know, there's
0: so much talk nowadays of attention spans of audiences now being so different than they were 10 20 30 years ago and that editing has become so much faster but really the structural momentum of back to the future is honestly faster than almost any contemporary film i can think of So as you may remember, in the nick of time, time being the operative word, Doc is able to connect these cables as the lightning strikes the clock tower and the electricity is sent into the flux capacitor of the DeLorean. Marty makes his way back to 1985. As the DeLorean rolls into town, we hear a tiny little bit of music playing in the headphones of a uh, seemingly homeless gentleman there in Hill Valley. And it's actually an Eric Clapton song that was also featured on the soundtrack. It's called Heaven is One Step Away. So uh-huh.
1: You know what is so perfect about the role of this song in the film and i i know it's kind of quiet in the mix but that just amplifies its effect because there's all this anxiety you know marty it's so stupid you know he only gave himself 10 minutes why didn't you make it like an hour ahead of time right. but anyways he doesn't have a lot of time and he needs to get to the other side of town and so when he gets back to hill valley this music is almost like the closest thing to a little celebration of like. he made it back in time but now he has to save Doc's life and so there's not an overt score gesture to underscore it and in fact there's something kind of sobering of like yeah you're back to the 80s but you know it's not that great (laughs) You know, there's still people who are homeless and, you know, don't have any place to live. And I I think there's something kind of stark about that contrast where it's like as much as he was trying to get away from the 50s, Hill Valley is kind of in a little bit worse of a state than it was back in the 50s. It just happens to be Marty's home.
0: The other wonderful thing about this song is it sets up a great juxtaposition in the underscore as the Libyan van drives by. Right. And Alan's intense action music right. kicks in to the next stretch. Of it's the film.
1: really fun when almost the music supervisor and composer can be fighting one another <laughs> right. emotionally, especially when it's done with intention. It adds for a whole other level of storytelling. I think we talked maybe before we've mentioned it, that great scene in It's George a Wonderful is Life. Yeah, when George is praying and, and you have that really delightful like and Italian bitty, bitty, music and it's like so Odds with him crying and weeping and thinking about ending his own life. It's like those kinds of juxtapositions are really powerful. And I think they're an element that just bring us into films all the more. It's interesting how long it's existed in films, especially, I mean, this is a bit of a divergence, but thinking about It's a Wonderful Life, you know, that's definitely an era that I don't associate with like hyper realism. But that kind of effect is so real and really pulls you into the film in almost a way that nothing in the visuals or writing in that era of cinema we're quite able to do right
0: because we've all experienced that feeling of being out of place with your environment or i think yeah of the mood of the, again to talk of, about
1: our dad he calls it the
0: burgers and fries moment there's I, I a think film breakdown with yeah. kurt russell at a particularly dire point in the film he enters this diner and <laughs> there's this burgers really and fries song and cherry that's pies playing. And yeah, he just loves the emotional juxtaposition of that. Right. Speaking of emotions, we're very soon thrown into a very emotionally powerful sequence of the film, which we will touch on next week. Uh, Safe to say, things go well for Marty and Doc. (laughs)
1: And what's so great is the last piece of music that we're going to be talking about today is arguably the most iconic song in the whole film, and it's saved for the end credits. Uh, And its presentation is just so classic. It's the kind of thing that was almost hinting at before. It makes it an alternate Back to the Future theme. We're talking about uh, the Huey Lewis and the News song, Back in Time.
0: And we hear a glimpse of it the morning Marty wakes up in his Clock radio, um, but really, it's cued up to be a very spotlit moment mm-hmm. in the end credits as the DeLorean shoots off into the camera. And there's a really interesting thing that happens. Will and I were looking at this earlier, where Alan's score starts sort of fading out, right? And this song opens with this kind of um, reversed tape effect, yeah. of This kind of crescendo in, and it's another nice example how they're working together. Like Will said, this is. A sort of back to the future underscore. For the Back to the Future cartoon show, an instrumental version of Back in Time served as
1: the theme song. Well, and I know for one of the NES games, uh, the title screen music is back in time. Ba 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 da, ba da da da, 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 da. That, that that instrumental riff really, yeah, it becomes a, a theme in and of itself. Uh and it's it's so well it's so well constructed melodically. It, it really—you could imagine it with an orchestral presentation. That same sequence of notes, da 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 da. I mean, it almost starts to sound like the love theme from Superman if you were to imagine it with a full orchestra or something. But in a movie that's already just bursting with so much delightful music, we get one of our best melodies and another example
0: of one of the most iconic pieces of music in the film. So let's take a listen. The ending and the beginning of the film are bookended with performances by Huey Lewis and the news. This is Back in Time.
1: There's so many things that I'm just noticing doing this. I, I don't know why. Uh, it just—it always feels so married to the film. Previously watching the movie, I'm not necessarily paying attention to things, but this song really communicates Marty's journey. What's so right. great is that riff is a saxophone-driven thing. Right, a tenor sax thing, just like in the Starlight. Yeah, just like with Night Train or something. It's almost like you were saying this, Marty. It's like it's learned from all the other 50s right. music and kind of brought it back into what was then contemporary and now feels just like another staple of the 80s. But I also love the opening line, tell me doctor, where are we going this time? (laughs) And what's so great about it is the song can live on its own it lives in that kind of vague territory of like that pop sort of song pop lyrics, lyrics. Yeah. Where, you know, when he says doctor, you're not thinking of like right. It doesn't Brown. feel out of place for a person. Right. But what's so perfect is it also is like literally about Marty and Doc Brown. And I don't know. Right. I just think that's so fun. It is just delicious. The other thing that's so great is the opening verse melodies of both of the Huey Lewis songs kind of open in a very similar melody. Right. Again, utilizing like the blues scale and some of those
0: altered notes. And he just has that great chesty, almost speaky kind of voice Mm -hmm. where the pitch isn't like a sine wave. It just has this great grit to it. Really one of those signature voices, Mr. Huey Lewis. But also both of these
1: songs have choruses that really rely on the instrumental riff like right. the chorus is basically just the intro with these little tags you know that's the power of love and then with this song gotta go back in time and then we're hinting at that same riff from the beginning i just think it's cool it's like the most memorable melodic aspect of the song is not the vocal melody it's the instrumental melody which you know it really works like score this is music that plays during the end credits, which is a big function in film. You know, we didn't really get that with Vertigo because it just said the end and, (laughs) you know everything was over that film had you know the opening titles but it's an important role for a composer to score a credit sequence Um, there's so many different approaches but one of my favorite approaches is kind of the music that's almost inviting you to get up and walk out of the theater that really has that high energy feeling and this music even though you know it's a song it really feels like it's doing that. All of the tension and stress of the movie in one instance is just completely dissolved. The movie is now acknowledging you, the viewer, and almost like thanking you for your time. And I, I right. think as a kid, it was always kind of stark how it just quickly transitioned from Alan Silvestri score now to just we're in this pop song. Right. But I think it just totally fits, like you mentioned, the fast-paced editing feel of this sure. movie that just all of a sudden in the end, it's over. It's wrapped up, you know? Right.
0: And so the end credits are shared by song and score. We go into Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future main theme, which we listened to last week, uh, as Back in Time fades out. You know what's
1: cool is both Back in Time, the song, and the credits version of the Back to the Future theme start with this kind of this slow crescendo fade. in. Right? Yeah, with I the mean suspended symbol. Yeah, the suspended Sylvester's symbol key. in Silvestri's cue, and you know this productiony reverse tape loop yeah. thing. Um, mm. But very similar musically in terms of how they're both introduced.
0: So far, the films that we focused on really musically are supported by a sole composer. Maybe a couple instances, which we didn't really, I suppose, talk talk about much with Raiders, say when Sala is singing Gilbert and Sullivan or Mm -hmm. something. Um, But But they're not playing like a recording of a Gilbert and Sullivan. What's great about Back to the Future, much like a high school dance, it requires maybe the Booster Club, adult chaperones, uh, staff volunteers. It's a team effort really coming together. Uh, And it's pretty incredible what happens with the combination of Alan's wonderful score and this great selection of songs and the songs newly written for this film. Well, And I think
1: one of the things that's so great about it is also something that's unfortunate with, uh, you know, I've always just scratched my head, you know, why is Alan Silvestri not the most popular and successful composer working today? I mean, like, Right. Back to the Future is one of the all-time great film scores and every movie he's done with Semeckis has just been outstanding Right, and I think part of it is because when people think of Back to the Future and when they think of the music they're not really thinking about the score even if it is incredible and sure. is memorable. They're thinking Johnny Be Good Yeah, I mean even Daniel. even our dad like the other day I'm like oh we're talking about Back to the Future and Underscore and he's like oh how, do, how does that one go because he was just thinking about all the other music in the film and then of course when I say it to him he's just like oh yeah that's amazing but it's just a movie that is so dense and so packed with other popular music that Silvestri's score you could say it's underrated even though it's attached to one of the most celebrated films It in many cases, has to take a back seat to some of this other popular music. And that's why I'm really excited in the next couple weeks to really celebrate not only that main theme of Alan Silvestri, but his incredible scoring decisions throughout this film in knowing when to step in and when to let some of the other music shine.
0: And as we've said before, the occurrence of the score in this film is so unique. That we really can only understand it as being related to the songs as they function in the film. That's the power of good score.
1: Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as we did. I mean, it's just a great excuse to listen to some great songs. Today's episode was a really great change of pace. And it again just solidifies how excited I am to continue our discussion on Back to the Future next week with our spotting session.
0: You know, I'm actually in the midst of recovering from an illness. Back to the Future fever. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the Future was really one of my primary go to sick day films when I'd be, you know, at home. Sick we should from have recorded school. the commentary when you were coughing up a storm. <laughs> we maybe should have. And I've just got to say, going through this music, talking about the film has just brought me so much joy. It's it was medicine. Just, There's just something healing and exciting about this film and everything that touches this film. So, again, thanks so much for going on this little journey with us today. Please let us know any of your thoughts, ideas, words of wisdom for the show, and drop us a line at the underscore show at gmail.com. You can find every episode of this show as well as uh, some supplementary
1: materials at our website, underscore podcast dot com and you can also follow us on all matters of social media you can like us on Facebook subscribe to our YouTube channel and also, if you're not already, subscribe on iTunes. And we very much would appreciate it if you were to rate and review the show if you were enjoying it. We've said this before, but it really helps new listeners to discover the podcast. And as a relatively new show, that's something that we've just been delighted to continue growing the continue growing the listener base. So thank you to all of you who... Thank you to all of you who've been tireless listeners to this
0: show, and we really appreciate all of your feedback and support. We hope you enjoyed last week's double episode week, which also featured an interview with the wonderful John Lund. So far, we've been fortunate enough to interview two wonderful composers on the show, Joe Kramer and John Lund. For any of you interested with in-depth conversations with wonderful working composers, please feel free to explore those episodes, and we hope to have, and we hope to have more conversations in the future. Well, as always, you can follow
1: us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Well, we got to run, everybody. Until next time. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care.
0: Underscore is part of the Mercado Brothers Podcast Network.